Spirit absolved them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed, a law, followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. Now, he did do that. He wrote a very, very orderly account. But Luke is very unique in a lot of ways. Um, Mark's source was Peter. Peter was tied to, to Mark at the um, hip. And Matthew was an apostle himself. Luke never met Jesus. Luke first appeared on the scene in the book of Acts as a sidekick to Paul. Luke is the only Gentile author in the entire Bible. Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, the two books he wrote, comprise more words of the New Testament than any other gospel writer, any other writer of the New Testament. No other writer wrote more words of the New Testament than Luke. He's even ahead of Paul on that, actually. Um, He was a doctor, and as a doctor, he wrote his gospel very, very, in a way where he would always investigate and investigate. He was a very intense investigative reporter. He was incredibly organized. He was one of us. He was a Gentile. He's, he's not, you know, he's outside the club. You know, the other gospel writers in the Jewish club and did it that way, but, but he was outside the club. Now, before we start, I think I'm, something I need everybody to understand about the gospels the Gospels are not random stories, not a, a group of random Jesus stories. And that's the way we read them. And unfortunately it is because that's the downfall of chapters and verses. The Bible was not written with chapters and verses. They were placed in there later for us to find stuff. But what that's done to us is we just take little segments of the Bible then, when in fact these Gospels are these massive, beautiful exquisite paintings that you have to step back and appreciate the whole thing together. But what we do is we walk up and we look at the little tree in the foreground and focus on that and forget the whole, the whole tapestry. Well, Luke did that magnificently in his gospel, and I, and I encourage you folks to please read the books end to end instead of just grabbing pieces of them because they're not random stories about Jesus. They're a narrative about Jesus. The way... Luke broke up the gospel. He broke it up into two pieces, the Galilean ministry and the trip to Jerusalem and the crucifixion. So what you don't appreciate from some of the other gospels is how much of his ministry was up in Galilee. You'll see on the map of Jerusalem there, and that you, you, I mean the map of Israel, you really should not study the Bible without a map. Um, I'm, I'm convinced of that. So if you look at this map, you can see Galilee is up north. Judea and Jerusalem is down south. Galilee is up by the Sea of Galilee, and it's where Jesus was born. Well, not Jesus born. Jesus was raised. He's born down in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth. And it's a five-day walk of almost 80, 90 miles down to Jerusalem, so it's hard to get from Jerusalem up to Galilee. His ministry in Luke focuses on Galilee all the way through chapter 9. It's where he grew up. Now, home base for the Galilean ministry was Capernaum. And up till now, in, in the gospel, we're going to get to chapter 6, up in Luke's gospel, Jesus has progressively come to odds with the Jewish leaders, and he keeps shocking everyone. Even his followers he would shock. He preaches truth, not to be followed, not to be loved. He preaches truth, and he's always hammering them with truth. 
So by now, he's, he's cast out demons, he's healed people, and he's claimed godship. In fact, one of the first things he does in Luke's gospel is you all remember the story when he goes in the temple and gets out the scripture, reads from Isaiah, and says, I, and essentially declares he's the Messiah. The Pharisees and religious leaders hated him from the beginning. Now, he's always catching everybody off guard. And in fact, in chapter 5, just before this, which you'll see it all ties together, in chapter 5 is a famous story very early in his ministry where they lower the guy through the roof. Remember? The crippled guy, they lower him through the roof. And he gets in front of Jesus, and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's thinking, well, why would he forgive his sins? Doesn't he want to, the guy to walk? But Jesus knew what he really needed. It, it is better to be a saved cripple than a lost walking person. And Jesus knew what he really needed. Well, the Pharisees right away said, oh, who is he to forgive sins? And Jesus asked them, what is it easier to do? And this brilliant Jesus stuff. What is, what is it easier to do? To say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Because in Jesus' world, he has to go to the cross to forgive the sins. He could, he could make a crippled guy walk with a blink of an eye. So um, he turns and says, so you know that I am the Messiah. Stand up and walk. So the guy stands up and walks. And his followers now are behind him, patting him on the back. Good smack down to the Pharisees, Jesus. And um, so as he walks out, the first thing he does in Capernaum is he comes to a tax collector's booth. And Matthew's sitting there and he says, follow me. Everybody hated tax collectors, his, his followers included. Not only that, he goes to, um, Matthew throws a tax collector party where all tax collectors come. And, and Jesus is a guest of honor. And again, the Pharisees are just fit to be tied with that. By now in this gospel, Jesus is a really big deal. And hundreds, and the Greeks suggest it could even be as many as a thousand people are following him everywhere he goes. He's, um, his ministry is taking off. And the plot to kill him is already in place. They are so upset with him, they want him dead. The battle lines are drawn. Now, um, earlier in uh, chapter 6, Jesus attacks the Sabbath. That was really the last draw. Um, You'll remember the story where he walks through the fields. These guys committed three Sabbath violations. They picked the grain, they rubbed them in their hands to get the husk off, and then they blew off the chaff. Three things. They, They had a fit. And Jesus said to them, well, don't you remember? You're okay when David ate the holy bread when he was fleeing from Saul. And then he went to the temple and healed the man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. That was it. So after those events, he goes up into the mountains. Next slide, please. You'll see in this slide, he's in Capernaum. This is a close-up of the Lake of Galilee. You see down Gennesaret is a town south of there. In between those two towns are a bunch of hills and mountains. That's where he goes. He goes in there and he goes to the top of a mountain and prays all night long. After praying all night long, he comes down and selects his 12 apostles out of the disciples. Now, he'd already picked, you know, Peter and James and John and Andrew. They were already with him, but he never designated any apostles yet. At this point, he first designates his apostles. And um, then he does, does a sermon on the mount. 
Now, we have to appreciate about the Sermon on the Mount, it is a sermon. It is a sermon. And in the two Gospels, you could read the Sermon on the Mount in a few minutes. These are just excerpts from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus told an incredible long sermon. But Luke does a magnificent job in pulling it all together and hitting the high points. But remember, the Sermon on the Mount and many of the things Jesus spoke about were, in fact, sermons. Jesus' primary function here wasn't to heal. It was to teach. And he was always about teaching. So now Luke and Matthew address some of the things Jesus said differently, to which Bible detractors say, aha, they're, they're each taking a poetic license with the sermon. Not true. Inasmuch as it's a very long sermon, Jesus was repetitive. And being repetitive, he would say the same things differently a couple times as people do in sermons. And that's what we will get the differences. Okay, so let's jump in. Luke 16, excuse me, 6, verse 17. And he came down with them and stood in a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So you could see where the crowd came from. We already saw from the previous map. People had to walk five days to get up to him to, to come to the, see the sermon. And wherever he goes, he has this gaggle of people following who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. Now, again, everybody's dogging Jesus and following him everywhere because they want him to heal. They, they want the healing stuff. But Jesus um, always knows what, what you really need. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God. Wow, I just need to be homeless. I'm, I'm, I'm in the kingdom of God. I just need to be poor. That's not what Jesus is saying, and that's one of the most misread texts in the Bible. Being poor does not make you one of Christ's followers. Being rich doesn't exclude you from being Christ's followers. You have to accept Christ. We know that the Bible is clear, indisputable, that the only way we're saved is through accepting Christ. So he's not saying poor. He's saying poor in spirit. In fact, the Greek lends itself to that. He's saying, blessed are you when you realize your need for a Savior. Blessed are you when you are broken and in need of a Savior. You are poor. In fact, later in... When um, John the Baptist asked Jesus, uh, asked, has his disciples go ask if Jesus is the one, Jesus says, tell them the poor are being taught. So he's, the poorness is not poverty, it's poverty of spirit. In fact, the same thing happened in the previous chapter. Remember I told you in the, the party of the Pharisees, um, the party the Pharisees were all upset about when he entertained all the tax collectors. Um, let's go to the next slide. In Luke 55, 31 through 32, Jesus says this to them. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have, come to call the, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So now you'd have to think, oh, wow, when Jesus came here, there were people who didn't need him. Wow, when Jesus came here, there, weren't, there, were, there were righteous people that didn't need him. Wrong. The better way to read that is, I didn't come to save people who don't know they need to be saved. I didn't come here to people who refuse the doctor. I came to people who know they need a doctor. 
So it's very important that you understand that now, because some of these verses in the Bible, people get off base on you. Got to keep focus on the message of the Bible. Christ and Christ alone saves you. Okay, let's go to the next, let's get back to our Sermon on the Mount. And see, this Sermon on the Mount is not just about the Sermon on the Mount, my sermon. It's about a guy who really got it. And we're going to get that at the end of, the, at the end of this. Well, somebody actually got the sermon. 21, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. See how Jesus is building it. He's saying, okay, now your hunger, now you're, you realize you're broken in poverty. You realize your hunger. Blessed are you because now I could feed you. I, now you're broken. Now I, could, now I could remove your sorrow. You're sorrowful not because you're just sad. You're sad because of your, your wretched um, state of, your wretched spiritual, spiritual state. This is a hunger that only Jesus could feed. And then now he brings it home. And this, this verse will only make sense if the other two are in their proper perspective. Uh, Luke six twenty two and 23. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So he's saying to them, okay, I got, I got some good news and bad news for you. I could feel you, I could feel you spiritually. I could feel you. Um, fill that hole in your spiritual soul. I could fill that with me. But then <laughs> you're going to be reviled and hated for it. But you're going to have joy. You're going to have joy that's going to fill your heart that replaces that. And then he turns his focus on the spiritually arrogant Pharisees. Um, Luke 6, 24, 26. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is a shot straight back at the Pharisees, who he's always at battle with head to head. You think you're so spiritually well. You put on your nice clothes. You put on your long uh, tapestry things that everybody could see what a great person you are. You think you're so spiritually rich and spiritually wealthy. You're poor and you have no idea how poor you are. And your, your hunger is going to be immense. And your thirst is going to be immense because you're going to realize at one point that you are not what you think you are. Very, very powerful stuff for Jesus. Now Jesus is ready to build on his sermon. Now think about this. As you hear this, a lot of these stories you'll hear, we always take out of, out of context and take them one, time in a, one piece at a time. But when you look at this sermon in its entire tapestry, it's an amazing sermon. He builds on it and builds on it. So now he's already told you that you're poor. He's already told you that you're, you're in need of him. Now he's going to start filling those holes. Uh, look, let's go to Luke 6, 27, 28. But I say to you who hear, that's an interesting verse, isn't it? You who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer him the other also. For the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So now he's told you what your wretched condition, he's telling you your way out of your wretched condition. And he's saying, the what you have to do is love people who hate you. Love is a choice. If they walk away from anything in the Bible, 
Love is a choice. It's not an emotional feeling. It is a choice. You have to choose to love your enemies, and that's what he's doing here. It's, an, it's a magnificent sermon, uh, the way he does this too. Then he brings it home in the next verse, Luke 6, 32 and 33. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good for you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. So now he's saying, you know, I I don't want to hear that you love your family. I don't want to hear you love your friends. That's easy. Try this. Love your enemies. And then uh, Luke 6, 39. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall in a pit? So he's telling you this is the truth. If you listen to the Pharisees, they're simply blind leading the blind. You're spiritually broken. They're spiritually arrogant. It's just the blind leading the blind. Do not listen to them. This is the truth. That's why we always have to fight false doctrine. Now, in this context... This next story comes out that we all love to say, but think about it in the context of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Luke 6, 41 through 42. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not notice that the log is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. We love those verses. We say them all the time. But look at them in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You're broken. You're, you're, you're in spiritual poverty. You need me. And then where do you get off telling somebody else about their problems? Take care of your own problems. Your problem's the guy in the, or gal in the mirror. When you get that person straightened out, then you can start worrying about taking specks out of other people's eyes. Great hyperbole to use a log as, a, as opposed to a speck. And that's such, such a great thing that Jesus did here. Now, the next line is incredible. It brings the sermon home. 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That is a timeless line, isn't it? Lord, Lord, the double Lord means Lord of Lords. Why do you call me God Almighty, Lord, Lords, and do not do what I tell you? And it's timeless because I could change it a little bit. Why do you come here Sabbath after Sabbath, sing songs, praise me, and go out there and not do what I tell you to do? That's what the sermon's about. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? And that's something that we need to... Focus every morning you get up. I want to call you Lord, Lord, and do what you say. Jesus ends his sermon by the verses Carol wrote, explaining what it's all about and what it, what it is to follow him and listen to him, what it is to not. Um, again, Luke 47 through 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. He's like a man building his house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house, and he could not shake it, because it had been, it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. If you 
listen to my words and do what I, and do what I tell you to do, your house will be built on a foundation that the storms of life cannot destroy. It doesn't matter what happens in the world, cancer, death, grief, destruction, your house is built on the rock. If you don't build your house on the rock, your destruction is great. When the first storm comes, you get wiped out. Now, when you put all this together, it's just such a masterful way Jesus did it. He first explains your problem, explains what your problem looks like, then explains the way out of your problem. Only Jesus. And, you know, any sermon that could even match this would be magnificent. So everybody says, great sermon, Jesus, great, great sermon. Who could possibly live up to that standard? Well, Luke, in his masterful way, shows us exactly who did that. Let's go to 7-1. Here's another chapter break that they just kind of randomly stuck a chapter break in the, in the story. Um, but there's not a different story. It's all, all the same part. Because look, 7-1 and 2. After he finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Okay, so remember where we were? We were back in those hills. He went back to home base, home base of the Galilean ministries, Capernaum. He goes back into Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. Now, again, after he finished, he goes into Capernaum, and oddly, a Roman centurion comes up. What is a centurion? A centurion is a Roman brute who's in charge of 100 soldiers. It could be as little as 80, as many as 120, but they called these guys centurions. They were Roman brutes whose job was to keep the peace with an iron fist and extort taxes and send them back to Rome. Keep the peace and severely punish anybody who doesn't pay the taxes that get sent back to Rome. Now, the proud nationalistic Jews hated them, hated them with a passion. They were pagans, they were oppressors, and they took their money in taxes and sent it to Rome. The Jews could not hate them more. And in fact, there's a group of Jews called Zealots. One of the disciples was, one of the apostles was a zealot. Zealots were commandos who killed Romans. They hated them that much. So this, the centurion comes up. Let's look at the next verse. With the centurion heard about Jesus, and the Greek for that heard means learned about, not just heard of him, learned about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How on earth are elders of Jews coming to Jesus to ask them to help a Roman centurion that they hate so much? That, that this makes no sense. The Jews hate the Romans. The Romans hate the Jews and have zero respect for them. Well, Luke tells us why. Next verses. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. Why? For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. Check this out. They're pleading earnestly with Jesus to heal his servant because he loves God? No, because he built us a synagogue and he loves us. Now, the Jews are always doing that. His worth is built on his works. But 
That's not what's going on here. And he, he has a far better understanding than they ever will. Now, look what he does. He loved his enemy. He came to there. He was incredibly hated, and he responded to hatred with love. He loved the Jews. He built them a synagogue. They, they did, I guarantee he was not embraced. He loved his enemy. Verse uh, 7, verse 6. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. This time he sends friends. He doesn't send the elders. He doesn't send one of the hundred guys he could tell what to do any time. He sends friends to Jesus. He says, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. He gets that he's not worthy. And, you know, even in today's world, we would think, well, the guy built a church. He, 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 loves, he loves the Adventists. He built an Adventist church. Certainly he's worthy, right? He gets it. I'm not worthy. No matter what I did, I'm not worthy. Um, verses, verse 7, 7 through 8. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And when my servant, and, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He gets Jesus better than any Jew ever did. He gets it. He understands what Jesus is all about, and he understands his lack of worth, his unworthiness. He gets it. Okay, now this is fascinating. Next verse, 7-9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is the only time in the entire Bible that Jesus marvels at somebody's faith. He marvels at lack of faith of the Jews. The only time in the entire Bible Jesus marvels at somebody's faith. And he is marveled by it. And he turns to the Jews and says, never, and by the way, hundreds if not a thousand, not one of you fools has the faith of this guy. Okay, I threw in the fools. Um, But none of you guys have the faith of this Roman centurion. That is a cold hard slap in the face. This Roman pagan, born and raised oppressor has more faith than you could ever imagine. And um, verse 10, 710, and when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So Jesus heals the servant and, and has a guy who's not even a Jew, get it. The guy gets it. So when we look at the world around us, do we do what he does? Do, do, we, do we reflect Jesus? Do we, do we realize that we are not worthy of anything we get from Jesus, that what we get is a gift? Do we realize our lack of worthiness? And when we go in the world, do we do 
do we call him Lord, Lord, and do, do what he says or not? 